Hello, old friends. This is Mike Dawson, and I welcome you to my Dreamers to Makers podcast, where I interview curious people that do extraordinary things. As I launch the second season of the Dreamers to Makers program, I am excited to present today's guest, film director and documentary producer, Stephen Slater. He is the archive producer for the 2019 documentary, Apollo 11. This award-winning film has appeared on the world stage as commemorations are taking place to celebrate the 50th anniversary of the Apollo 11 space expedition. The documentary was directed by Todd Douglas Miller and has already become a hit internationally. I have invited my friend and colleague, Brandon Phibbs, to interview Stephen Slater today. Phibbs is best known for his work as researcher for Cosmos, a space-time odyssey, and as associate producer for The Story of God with Morgan Freeman. He is also one of the masterminds behind one of my favorite new podcasts, Wikisurfer. Last series on Wikisurfer, Brandon and I explored the awesome span of the Amazon River. The Earth must have been baking you must have been quite a warm little river, Brandon. I bet it feels nice. Oh, yeah. Oh, this feels great. I recommend this temperature if you ever decide to become a river. Inventory the world's most astonishing mummies. In December of 1976, the television show The Six Million Dollar Man with Lee Majors was filming at the amusement park when a prop man moved what he thought was a wax mannequin hanging from the gallows. That's when the mannequin's arm broke off, exposing a human bone and muscle tissue. Sampled the history of recorded sound. Thousands of these cylinder recordings were sold to the public. Many of the artists and tunes recorded are not something we'd recognize today, even though some of them are quite good. Witnessed the destructive wrath of a volcano. When the national spotlight turned to the lead-up of the eruption of Mount St. Helens, Harry R. Truman became something of a minor celebrity. He gave interviews to local and national reporters, indicating that he refused to leave his home. Quote, If the mountain goes, I'm going with it. That mountain's part of Truman, and Truman's part of that mountain. Peered inside our potty mouths. Shakespeare's plays were edited to remove anything that might offend women or children. Away, you starveling, you eel skin. You dried meat's tongue, you bull's pizzle and entrenched ourselves on the battlefields of World War II. The last of the Japanese forces attacked in one of the largest bonsai charges of the Pacific campaign. The Japanese penetrated all the way through and into the rear of the American force, engaging in close quarter and hand-to-hand combat with swords. This summer, Kyle and I will be embarking on a new series of thrilling and illuminating adventures. We'll be taking a trek into outer space, communing with Aztec gods, stand at ground zero for one of history's largest explosions, and examine the moment when life first conquered the skies. While there are some creative changes ahead, 
We promise Wikisurfer will continue to be an experiment in podcast storytelling and your source for the most wonderful, weirdest, and interesting stories Wikipedia has to offer. We are busy writing the new series of Wikisurfer right now. If you haven't already, be sure to check out Series 1 and hear what all the fuss is about. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts or visit us at www.wikisurferpodcast.com. Brandon, thanks for sitting in to interview my guest, Stephen Slater. I appreciate you working this in into your schedule. How's it been going? Well, thank you for inviting me. This is uh, quite the honor. I've would, I can't wait to talk to this guy, and I am doing well. Thank you very much. Let's uh, listen in on uh, your uh, great interview with uh, uh, Stephen Slater, who was the archive producer for the great documentary film Apollo 11 and then maybe we can uh, talk a little bit after the interview is wrapped up here and we can uh, talk about what we uh, heard sounds fantastic cool alright well Stephen I think before we go anywhere before I ask you any questions first I have to make a declaration or two and that is to say congratulations because Apollo 11 is gobsmackingly amazing. It was such an amazing film, and I just wanted to say thank you for having such a crucial and critical part in it. That's very kind of you. No, thanks. I'm, I mean, I think we're, we're kind of all, all a bit overwhelmed by the reaction to it um, as we sort of used to sitting in dark rooms, and then we kind of see the reaction. It's, it's amazing, yeah. Very humbling. Well, I confess, you know, it's one of those things I, I wrote on Facebook after I walked out of the theater and I kind of sat in my car for like 20 minutes and kind of like wrote a little review before I even turned the key to drive home. And I think one of the things that shocked me so much about it is you think there's not a new way to tell this story. You are so familiar with the story. Um, you know every little in and out. You know every crevice of it. And then you see something like this, which has so much new footage and spectacular footage. I mean, I, I was thinking, it was this shot yesterday in 4K? I mean, this is lavishly beautiful. And I found myself thinking, I, I know every every touchstone of of the of the narrative progression of this story, and yet it is told with images that are so different than I'm used to that it feels fresh and open ended. And it, it's just, if you haven't seen it, listeners. You absolutely have to go see it as soon as you can. If it's still playing at a theater on a large screen near you, you must go see this movie. Yes, and I, I'm sure there's going to be lots of opportunities to see this as the you know the anniversary comes up. But but no, I, I completely agree. I mean, I felt the same way when I saw. Um, you're talking about um, the 70 millimeter footage, which was basically newly discovered for this um, for this production. Um, and we, I remember sitting in the Air and Space Museum in in DC in December 2017. We had a test screening, and that was the first time I'd seen. It was, it was actually the suiting up reels of the astronauts, and you know, I say everyone's jaw was on the floor who hadn't seen it. Obviously, they'd seen it in the um, in the lab uh, when they were transferring the film. But it was, yeah, I I kind of know the feeling. <laughs> Well, be, I don't want to get ahead of ourselves, so um, we will get to the film and we will get to your role in it and we'll get to that footage here in, in a moment. But first, I kind of wanted to um, 
you know, since origin stories are all the rage these days, I'm kind of curious, what's your origin story? Where were you born and where did you grow up? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm, um, I live in Sheffield in, in England, which is kind of a um, former industrial city in the north of England. Um, although I was actually born just south of London, but I've lived here um, pretty much my whole life um, and grew up in the Peak District, which is uh, the uh, biggest national park actually in, in England. So very um, rural sort of um background but if, if you're talking about my interest in space i think it probably began in about 19 early 90s uh, as, a, as a child when i um just was very interested in planets and and space exploration and then i saw apollo 13 uh, movie with uh, ron howard movie with tom hanks starring tom hanks um, in 1995 at the cinema and i think that has a lot to answer for in in terms of me being interested in Apollo and the moon, the manned moon landings. And now I understand your dad was a presenter for the BBC, correct? Well, he still is. He's uh, he was a BBC uh, sports reporter, uh, well BBC um, uh, specialising in football, but he also um, covered Formula One, auto racing, as you call it in the US, and cycling, uh, kind of big sort of broad spectrum of of sports uh yeah um but he's still he's still working just not maybe quite as much as he as he used to but um yeah he was at the winter olympics last year um things like that so yeah he's ticking along i am uh, i'm one of those weird people who i'm not a, a a huge sports fan um but the one codicil to that is the Olympics. I will watch every minute I can clap my eyes on during the Olympics. I have been known to get like two or three hours of sleep a night during the entire run of the Olympics, just record everything and just watch obsessively. So I understand that. I appreciate your dad's work in that kind of field. Yes, it's uh, no, it's, it's always a special, um, a special thing, the Olympics. Yeah, for sure. So you mentioned that, you know, you kind of grew up, you, you saw Apollo 13. That was like some some inspiration, stuff like that. W- would you qualify those sorts of things, just watching shuttle launches, uh, uh, movies like that, as sort of the, the catalyst that kind of um, ignited a love for space uh, in you? And did you know at a young age that like, hey, I want to do something with this this topic with in terms of a career or was that something that you kind of stumbled on uh, much later? Well, there's two things. There's kind of two elements. There's the, the interest in space. And then there's also the kind of filmmaking aspect. And I think possibly the, um, the space interest had kind of receded a bit. I, I went to, to college actually here in Sheffield um, in 2004 and 2005. And it was around that time. I mean, I've been making editing shooting and editing films at home for since I was 14 13 or 14 probably a lot of the time when I should have been doing my schoolwork um and then so that just got me very interested in creative creating films editing um and then particularly documentaries and when I was at college uh was around the time when uh the Huygens space probe landed on Saturn's largest moon, Titan. So this was, um, it was uh, with the launched in 1997 with the Cassini Miller craft. This was a, a massive international um, unmanned space mission to explore Saturn. 
and it carried with it a, a small lander which parachuted through um, Titan's atmosphere and landed in some right, back right. pictures. So I got so hooked on that when I was at school. I'm oh, sorry, when I was at college in, in, in Sheffield. And I remembered vividly because I was actually talking about this recently because I actually been back there recently to because they want me to be an, an ambassador for the for the college, which is weird because I, I don't I never considered myself a kind of a model student really but then yeah <laughs> um i vividly remember sitting and watching this a live stream of this landing on um the computers in the the library there and this was like a windows media sort of streaming so way before this was before you remember the days before facebook before twitter anything like that and i i just watched as the scientists were sort of reacting to this Happening. There was this British guy called John Zarnacki who was talking about how they'd spent 17 years building this space probe. And and it was all this, it basically all came down to that one day in January 2005. Was it going to survive? And was it, were we going to get any data for, for all these years of efforts? And I thought, I want to tell that story. You know, that's a great story. And so a very long story short is that six years later that film ended up on the BBC, um, which I basically self financed, self, um, edited. Um, and I told that story interviewing those scientists and retelling that story using the archive from, uh, because obviously the, the thing about archive as with Apollo 11, I wasn't there. None of us were there who were on the team. We we need to tell a story using either material that exists, existed already, or by recollections of people who were involved, or a combination of the two. And there you have documentary filmmaking, I think. But uh, yeah, that's incredible. I had no idea that you had kind of like self financed it, and then and then the the BBC had shown it. So I assume you're talking about Destination Titan, right? The the documentary. Yes, I am. Yeah. So that was. Um, that's the first big, I'd say, um, space-related. Well, I, I'd say it's probably the thing I'm still probably most proud of. Um, having it was kind of my baby that, and then mm-hmm. to see that come up, go on the BBC. But more importantly, I think it it really inspired a love of of archive and and finding all the best archive. And I think that's kind of why why we are where we are today in terms of my career choices or the projects I've worked on since then. Cause that's, I mean, that's eight years ago now. So yeah, it's, uh, I can't yeah. Remember. Yeah. Judging by your IMDB profile, you've always been interested in space, all the kind of things, but what kind of struck me is all the different roles you've kind of played across your career. So like, you know, when you're at a party and someone says, Hey, Stephen, what do you do? Like, what do you say? Are, are you a researcher? Are you a research producer? Are you an archive producer? You're an editor, you're a director. Like you've kind of played in, in all the spaces. What do you consider yourself? What is your kind of, you know, calling for lack of a better word? I, I'm very much a kind of that I can do everything and I'm a bit of a control freak. I like to be able to do everything, but I, I wouldn't have said that filming or a lighting cameraman or something very specialist like that would be my um, thing. I'd probably get someone to, to, to do that with me, like on Destination Titan. I, you know, I had someone who filmed those interviews with me, which is pretty much the only thing I didn't do on the film. But the, yeah, because I need to concentrate on doing the interviews, although I could have filmed the interviews if I'd wanted to, it just might not have been quite as good because I'm not as, I'm not as trained in that 
field. Um, but but um, I sorry. What would people say? What would I say to someone at a party now? Is I'd say I specialize as an archive producer because, and I, I don't think it's a very well defined role. It, it's, Please give us that. What is an archive producer? Well, I'd say I'd say it's it's basically a glorified another way of saying archive researcher, but probably in a kind of a more senior level in that I'm um, making more creative um, suggestions with that material. It's not just a, a case of me uh, passing it over to the director and then letting him then do all the, um, make all the decisions. I'm intimately involved normally with the, um, not always, but uh, with, with the filmmaking process and certain decisions. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I also, in my case, I, I, I just always make it a, mission to sort of understand everything I can about a particular subject and just go to the sort of nth degree to try and um, uncover as many stones as I can uh, because mm-hmm. I just feel like there's so much uh, it's something that's been in the news a lot here in the UK recently because of uh, criminal proceedings uh, um, but I worked on a documentary about the Hillsborough football disaster which actually happened in my hometown of Sheffield and that was uh well incredibly different from working on something about the space program and very harrowing in many ways because it was um it involved looking at a lot of quite distressing material uh and a lot of for example tv coverage um I mean, if I should, if I could just backtrack a bit, it was a, a stadium disaster where ninety-six Liverpool football fans were. I remember were, were crushed to death. Um, yeah, I remember that. It was the FA Cup semi-final. I was only two years old at the time, um, but interestingly, it was the week that we, as a family, moved to the area, um, and a very good friend of ours was actually the um, secretary of. Sheffield Wednesday Football Club at the time, and which is Hillsborough is the stadium of Sheffield Wednesday. So, and with my dad being a football reporter, it, it, it's a story that's very, very close to home in many ways. And so, mm-hmm. I eventually end up working on this film, which we you know, you're transported back to that day. And I remember, I still remember vividly sitting in an edit suite looking at all the match coverage from that day. Basically there's isolated cameras from all around the, the ground that were recorded in, in a in a van, basically. And just the horror of it and the the sounds and everything just stuck stuck with me for a long time. But that's another example of where I just got completely immersed in trying to understand everything I could about what happened on that day and, and what the visual record would be, um, researching transcripts, police interviews, um testimony of people who were there to try and understand what material existed um and obviously there are a lot of legal issues around that as well which which would probably take 10 more podcasts to to go into i'll (laughs) I'll, I'll leave it there but uh yeah i don't actually know if i answered your question about me being an archivist. no it did it it, it Uh, did and and i'm you know i'm kind of curious like you know what is you know for our listeners what is uh, a, a sort of like average day in a life for you when you're an archive producer, what does that mean? What's the kind of like nitty gritty? If we were to follow you around for a day with our own cameras, what would we see? 
Um, a lot of looking at computer screens. I mean, a lot of a lot of uh, the research because of current technology can happen online. But the, the mistake that I think a lot of people can fall into is that they seem to think that everything is is now available on YouTube or on the internet, and and actually that's just the kind of surface layer, or it might be just material which has been broadcast or which is is more easily available that someone has then put on YouTube. Um, if you start to dig deeply uh, then you can find all kinds of things and, and that can involve um, going to museums going to libraries going to um, also places where you can just access different data research databases so I'm very I'm a very hands-on kind of um, researcher in that I like to do all the research myself I don't really like relying on other people to do to do that research so, <laughs> um just because i have like ways i like doing things uh, mm -hmm. so i'm sure you're the same in many ways but, yeah. i think we all we all are there are times however where you realize that the scope of the project is so overwhelming that you have no choice but to rely on others and that's when it's important to uh surround yourself with the best people possible yes i mean if, if we talk about i know we're not talking specifically about Apollo 11 here, but uh, Apolo 11 is, is, is an example of where it, it needs, you, you need to master that one particular archive really well, I think, which is the NASA archive. And that's something I've made my, I'd say my life's mission, but it's not quite, quite like that. But I've, you know, spent several years trying to get to the bottom of that. Whereas, other productions might like the Hillsborough. Actually, the Hillsborough thing. Um, a lot of that is was BBC material because the BBC were at the match filming. But I did another film about the life of George Best, who was another English, who was an English soccer player, and the film covered his whole life. So in that case, you could be talking about a hundred different archive sources. So that's a different it's a very different kind of project and you have to work out always where's likely to be the most um, uh, fruitful place to search and then maybe sure. maybe put a lot of your eggs in that basket um, and then you can dig up some good stuff because obviously there's not going to be time to do that everywhere for every right. ability, especially with someone who's was filmed as much as George Best. I mean, I've, imagine how much archive must exist so so how did you become involved in apollo 11 how did a brit get involved in obviously the you know the space program is particularly even apollo 11 is something that is beloved globally so i'm not i don't mean it in in a, any sort of derogatory way whatsoever but like how did the filmmakers reach out to you and say hey you know come on this project we're going to make something special how did you get involved in that Back in about um, 2010, I began this, which was just before we Destination Titan was was finished and aired. I got involved with trying to synchronize audio that had been recorded on the Apollo 11 um, air to ground. So this is the what you hit, hit what you heard during the mission, the, the capsule communicator in Houston talking to the crew. Um, Tranquility Base, the Eagle has landed. Roger Tranquility. There's one guy in mission control whose job it was to speak to the um, to the crew 
Um, and so that's the audio you heard. So I'd always looked at this mission control footage and thought, well, I actually want to see the, these guys um, speaking. Why is it I'm never, I never see that? And the answer is, as I was soon to learn, is because all that footage was recorded completely without sound. It was shot on 16 millimeter cameras that these guys were just literally wandering around, getting a quick shot here, then shooting a, a screen, shooting a clock, and then they'd probably go for a cigarette break and come back 10 minutes yeah, later. So so you just have this jumbled mess of, of, of film footage from Apollo 11, and I wanted to sort of try and work out when it was shot and then synchronize the audio. And actually I did all of that for the Apollo 11 descent and landing um, in around 2010, and there was a there was some articles about it at the time, uh, and I think uh, probably that that was the first time I was working with the Apollo archive in a, in that kind of specific way, and then I went on to work on a documentary all about Gene Cernan, who was the last man to walk on the moon. This was a feature-length documentary that um, premiered in 2014, so it was his life story and again that relied on um primarily the nasa archive um and so i used those skills that i developed through doing that sinking project and through destination titan to um to tell his story and that film was released um i think reasonably well acclaimed although i'm um it, it's a while since i've i've seen it um but then kind of probably as a result of me working on these projects, I became just known as the person to sort of go to maybe when it came to these big sort of space documentaries. And then I'd also accumulated a lot of my own archive. I say my own archive, co copies of the NASA archive. I, I have copies of a very large collection of that and a lot of it's in high definition. And so it's because of how hard it is for people to, to get material from NASA, I end up getting a lot of people just coming to me wanting access to material and wanting footage. So it's not like they, they particularly need my time. It's more that they need access to the footage. So in 2016, I was introduced to Todd Douglas Miller from Statement Pictures, who went on to direct the Apollo 11 documentary. And what Todd was trying to do at that stage was he, they had been commissioned to do a short documentary about Apollo 17. Uh, and the idea was to tell the story of Apollo 17 just using the archive. So no modern day interviews with Gene Cernan, who was still alive at the time, and old Jack Schmidt, or well, Ron Evans, the other crew member died in 1990. But it was just to tell it using the um, the film they shot on the mission and on the ground. And he'd, I, I guess, he'd been tipped off that I um, I had a large collection of that. And so we started working together on on that film in 2016. I sent them everything I had on Apollo 17. At the time, it was one of these things where, yeah, it's just another, it's just kind of another inquiry. Uh, and then I think it was in the spring of that year, I got sent a, a, a rough cut of the film to give notes. And I suddenly realised, wow, these guys really 
know what they're doing. The music was perfect. The editing, the way everything was structured. It's just this kind of spider sense you get when you can see that someone nice. gets it. Um, and I was... Right. Um, and then I, I flew to the Hamptons uh, Film Festival in at the end of that year t- for the premiere, and it looked amazing on the big screen. And so that was that was the start of that relationship. That film is available now on on YouTube. It's called The Last Steps. Um, it's on the Great Big Story uh, channel, which is a, a channel run by CNN for short films that they funded. And then Apollo 11 came off the back of that, but I don't know. So I'll probably, that's probably too, too much detail there. I don't know. Do you, do you need me to? No, not at all. So you, because you were, so you were previously involved with Todd and his crew and stuff like that. So it made sense then when they went to tackle Apollo 11, which is even more um, drowning in, in research and stuff like that, that it made a lot of sense then that they're like, you're still our guy. Yeah. Well, so we, we, we'd done the last step. I thought that the last steps was, was, was brilliant. It was one of the you know, best projects I'd, I've worked on. It was kind of a level above some of the things I'm, I'm used to where I've, I've, I've helped out with things. And, uh, and then, so I said to Todd, because I knew that this anniversary was coming up, the 50th anniversary. Well, Look, I've just I've done all this work to sync up all this mission control audio for Apollo Eleven, and I've got all this stuff on hard drives. I, I, I think there's the possibility that we could do something that would be different for the 50th anniversary using that, and then also using. But all we were thinking at that stage is let's get all the best tra- copies of everything out there that exists. Uh, the, the kind of that we already know about, but let's make it in a style like the last steps uh, and just in a way that retells that mission in an all archive way, like, like the last steps. And I didn't think of it as being, you know, a, an IMAX movie. I thought of this as a kind of a short film, maybe a 30 minute film, but that would just do a really good job of summarizing that mission and maybe doing it in a new way. And I, I thought that Todd was the right person to do it. Um, so we talked about it. I think quickly CNN came on board to the idea. And then a few months into the project, after we were, we'd sort of scoped out what existed, then the 70 mil material landed in our lap and it just became a, a different proposition. But, uh, yeah. So for our listeners who are not aware or who have not seen the film, uh, there is no narrator. There are no interviews. Everything is in situ um, archive material. So Stephen's job, I would have to assume, sir, was incredibly important because you have to be able to tell the story every step to get from this from this occurrence to that occurrence. Yeah. And you have to be able to tell that only with audio and video that you can that, that's available and so for me when i'm watching the film you know one of the thoughts i had was you had the hardest job because you in essence were the narrator you in essence were the guy being interviewed but it was not with people you were speaking to it was archive material you were finding well yes i, I mean really the, the main thing we're talking about here is the mission control footage now as as i said 
if we just take a step back, the, the what I'd done in 2010 was mainly restricted to the, the descent, power descent and landing, and that covered a kind of uh, hour, a couple of hour long period. So now what we were looking to do was to do that for the entire Apollo 11 mission. So that's the eight, not one, nine, eight stroke nine days of that flight. And yeah, I'm basically looking at all this archive and thinking, when did this happen during the mission? Primarily with the mission control material, which we can come on to later. And a lot of that is dictated by the audio and being able to place the audio in the right place and sync it with the footage. So then that gives us a timeline where we have eight sort of eight, eight days worth of, of material. As I understand it, you had, I've read 11 thousand hours of mission control audio is that correct yes that's correct in fact there's eighteen thousand hours that would that have been recorded that have been transferred for the apollo program but eleven thousand was related to apollo 11 that is extraordinary so you are trying to match audio to video that like you said was shot randomly by people between cigarette breaks and whatnot and and you can only generally do if you just happen to also catch some sort of time counter or a clock or something like that in the background it sounds forgive me for saying so tremendously tedious um is this the kind of thing that you kind of thrive on? Is it not tedious to you because it's just kind of how you are built? Or is it one of those things where every moment is agonizing, but the ecstasy that comes when you actually do get a match is worth it? Yes, I think you've summarized it quite well there. Although I've never found it hugely tedious because you learn so much from from just listening to it and, and every baby step you take, you find out a bit more about the mission. So it's uh, sometimes you could spend like three or four days just, just doing one clip and, and it sounds like animation. It's that kind of chore. But sometimes sometimes things came quicker than you might imagine. It's like, it's, it's a bit like a jigsaw puzzle in that once you, once you have one bit working, then that can lead you on to solving another problem elsewhere. So it's, it's, um, it's fun. I, I maybe not to everyone, but it's uh, and I like the idea that, that once it's done, it's kind of done forever. So it's done for posterity in a way. That's like that, sure. that problem is now solved forever. Although where people are going to find it, or I'm not sure. But um, actually, I do know where they're going to find it. But that's um, we can come on to that. But um, well, and that's a good point. Like you know, the work you did. Um, may have made the film Apollo 11 amazing, but it is also did a lot of extraordinary work for NASA. I'm sure if I was uh, uh, working at NASA NASA history and stuff like that, those guys must be delighted and overwhelmed with the work you did. Um, I I wouldn't uh, (laughs) – don't bank on that. NASA's a very – the thing about NASA is they're a very forward-looking agency, and I've always found – don't be under any illusions that they would always sort of throw open their doors and say, come in and, and, and find this stuff. I think I've probably annoyed a lot of people at NASA over the, over the years, just by my sort of persistence in, in getting, trying to find the best stuff. And no, absolutely. I'm sure that they do uh, appreciate it. And um, particularly Bill Barry and the, the NASA HQ team in Washington. I know how much they, they like the film and appreciate the work. But 
they are coming at it from a different perspective to me. They have new spacecraft to build. They have new goals to achieve. And I don't know. Um, I think ultimately it would be nice if um, this material, well, the raw material is going to the National Archives, but the synced material, I, I hope, will have a kind of permanent place that's not on some hard drive in Sheffield, uh, ultimately. Uh, but my, one of my colleagues, Ben Feist, is actually building a, um, who, who was the sort of, we haven't really talked about him, but he is a software uh, developer from Canada, from Toronto, and he took this 11,000 hours worth of audio because, like, it's, it's the kind of audio equivalent of the mission control footage in that it's it had just sort of been dumped onto a, um, onto a hard drive. And it had a lot of technical problems with it. The audio suffered from wow and flutter, which are, I know they're quite technical terms, but basically everyone sounded... Um, worried <laughs> all the all these controllers so if um oh, i haven't really introduced the concept of the 30 track basically that there was 60 chan think of it as 60 channels worth of audio throughout the entire mission all of those guys in mission control have headsets on so each of those channels effectively gives you access to their headset um mm-hmm. but before steven slater can apply the um attempt to sort of to sync this material with the with the film footage we first of all have to know when they're saying it in the mission so ben did this absolutely unbelievable genius job of correcting all these deficiencies with the audio and then effectively making a it's almost like a beetle think of it as a beetles multi-track session of uh the whole apollo mission or a pro tools um uh, project so that I can literally go right. in there and go to any time in the mission with the mission clock uh, as a reference and say, well, okay, what's happening on that channel at 102 hours into the mission? And then I will get 60 channels of audio and I can uh, solo each of those channels and then I can get some film footage and think, well, and try that footage, try that audio to see if it works against a guy talking. So... Ben, that is amazing. Ben's um, a huge part of of why we've been able to do that. Um, this is a collaborative. Pro- I mean, uh, filmmaking, television, documentaries is an art form that is more than any other. I think a collaborative process. You know, we have our we're very our tour theory you know basically lends us to believe that you know the director is this end all and be all of a creative project when in reality it's uh, uh, hundreds of different people working their butts off to create something epic and if one of them you know part of the daisy chain falls the entire thing collapses and you guys more than i think than even most are a perfect example of just the best, most passionate people all coming at things and just layering your work on top of each other and producing something truly amazing. We should also mention, by the way, to uh, to the listeners who aren't aware of it, but Ben's sister, Ben Feist's sister, is the the pop singer Feist, the excellent singer. Yeah, and Feist. you know, I had I, I, I had no idea how famous she was, and we we I actually I met her at um, at Sundance. She came to um, Sundance. She actually did a gig at Sundance when we were there, and. 
you know, she she was great and uh, such a lovely person. But I I had no idea of this this other life of um, of sort of pop stardom. So uh, yeah. I think a lot of us discovered her. Uh, she did a number of Apple commercials uh, several years back, and I think that's where a lot of the world was uh, was woke to her her awesome music. But what was really great was that she went on stage uh, at Sundance in Park City um, and said, "Actually, I'm not here for me. I'm here for my brother. He's done this. He's part of the Apollo Eleven team, and you know, gave him a big." shout out and i think that it, it's great that ben feist is getting the recognition that he deserves absolutely absolutely now were you involved with the discovery of the unreleased 70 millimeter footage well i was <laughs> that's that's a big story in itself it's uh we we yes in the sense that um i'd got to know the guys at the national archive in particular a gentleman by the name of dan rooney who's just the most um the dream kind of guy you'd want to work with at an archive who really is really passionate about the material, understands the history and, and understands um, what's required from a technical point of view in the modern world, I'd say. So we got to know him and we were discussing uh, the, the 16 and 35 mil stuff, which we knew already knew already existed because even before the 70 mil material came on the scene, we still, had very high aspirations in terms of quality for this film. So that meant when it when it comes to motion picture film, in the in every instance, we want to be able to to scan the original reels. So that's like the the reels that were in the camera. In in the case of let's say the mission control footage, it's shot on something called reversal film, ectochrome, which um, it, it's not negative. It, it it's the the, the, the film that's in the camera is the original and is, is processed. Um, I, I, so I don't know quite how technical your audience is, but it's, it's, if they can imagine, if you can imagine an old slide, old slides, it's a bit like that or, or, or a Polaroid photograph even. So we, gotcha, okay. so then once that, that uh, reel is copied, then it loses a lot of um, generations and then, that's, sure. that's why you end up with this muddy stuff, which has been seen in countless of every copy loses yeah. integrity. Yeah. So it's a huge uh, research process in itself to identify where the original reels ended up, and so we've been working with Dan to try and identify. Well, do, do you have all this Apollo Eleven original material? And we we would arrange to have the film inspected. So, because they can tell from the key codes and, and uh, etc. Whether it is the original, and then as as you would expect with something as big as the Apollo program, multiple generations of these reels have been made to to give to news media and whatnot. And so you had the same footage appearing on multiple multiple different reels, and it was a case of working out where is the original because that's what we want to scan. We don't want to scan copies. We, mm-hmm. we need to scan sure, the originals sure. with the best technology available, and then. So we've been in a dialogue with with him them about doing these new scans, and he said, "Well, uh, I'm going to I'll get back to you about kind of the project as a whole." We didn't hear anything for a few weeks, and then it was the 10th of May 2017. This email came into my inbox from Dan. It was addressed to me and Todd and Tom, who was who's the producer. And it had all these bullet points saying what that how they could help us with the film, what different 
collections they had available for Apollo 11, what they've identified. And then we got to this line that said, we found what we think are 165 reels of 65 millimeter film. And we're not really sure exactly what it is, but over a third of them are identified as being related to Apollo 11, the, the suiting up, the launch, recovery activities, all this kind of thing. And it was just like, what? <laughs> um, yeah, I was. I, I want to be a fly on the wall of you guys' brains when you read that. Well, it was because, like, that because we've all seen that. That's what, I, like, that's kind of what I was saying in the beginning. You know, like we, we are so familiar with this footage. We've seen so much of the same footage over and over again because that's all that exists. And then all of a sudden, now it's not all that exists. You find new footage, and oh, by the way, it's not just some like random sixteen millimeter or something. It was shot in like the same aspect ratio that we shot Lawrence of Arabia. Yes, and I, I mean, I, I know it would have been great to be a fly on the wall. I'm sure when I got that, because I, 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 I distinctly remember that I, I would almost always with Todd, the director, we would have prearranged Skype calls. And I, I, I guess it's this kind of thing where you get some good news and you just immediately want to sort of tell tell the word, world. I, I had this email and I read it and then literally I, I thought, no, look, I'm, I'm just going to call. I'm going to call him and... And so I, I immediately rang him and said, look, have you, like, have you seen the email? Have you seen the email? And, and he hadn't. I think he was out walking somewhere and, um, you know, sort of demanded that he looked at this email because I was just so excited. And I think we knew relatively soon after reading that email that the whole direction of this project was uh, much bigger than, than we, we'd originally uh, thought. But just the fact that this stuff exists, I mean, I'm still, to be honest, I'm still kind of in shock. I mean, I knew on that day that it, it could be something very special, but even then I didn't actually understand quite how amazing it was. But um. It is amazing. And I think one of the things that amazes me is that, I mean, okay, so it's it's not something multi-generational that's been dubbed a thousand times and looks like, you know, when you go to YouTube and it gives you the different options like of how you can, what uh, what quality you can stream it in, you know, and sometimes it's down to like 101 or 200 something. And, you know, you're like, this is the worst possible quality of something that I've ever seen. That's the kind of context in which we've seen most of these images. So to see that footage, that crystal, crystal clear and that size was astonishing. And I have to say, the stuff that awed me the most, and obviously you you didn't have any new footage from, uh, as I understand it, anything that was actually shot in space. All of the footage was, as you said, um, the footage of the Saturn V on the pad, footage of the astronauts suiting up, uh, entering the capsule, these sorts of things. You'd think, oh, okay, so they don't really have like new footage of the best stuff. But that's not how it plays. I mean, it is so inspirational uh just even watching that sort of 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 footage that you don't it, it doesn't bother you at all i mean it's it's astonishing just watching people suit up and climb into rockets and stuff like that because the footage is just so absolutely revolutionary yeah i mean a bit of background on this we i, I was actually involved 10 years ago in the um the re-release of a classic 1970 film called moonwalk one so this was nasa had basically hired quite an avant-garde director called theo kameka um uh, who worked for a company called the francis thompson company who specialized in these sort of large format films and they he'd done a really um sort of niche 
um, what became quite a cult film uh, that that was not the kind of the official NASA film about Apollo Eleven, and this had a lot of the very famous shots of the the crew walking out, um, some of the suiting up shots, um, the crowds on the launch day, etc. So, uh, and then the film was kind of forgotten about. Um, but I had always been under the impression that the source material for that film had been destroyed um, due to uh, some information we found at the National Archives. And so when I when we got this news that the 70, 70 mil, 65 mil material existed, my first thought was, well, could it be the, the source material for Moonwalk 1? Um, and the answer was, yes, it was. But then also it was all this other stuff that we didn't know about as well. So the, the Moonwalk 1 stuff is is some of the most amazing c- cinematography I've ever, I've ever seen, which is the, the spectators at the launch site, the suiting. Actually, the suiting up was, um, I think, was filmed by a NASA cameraman. But the just they hired the best camera guys at the time to work on that film. And all we'd ever seen until that point was literally what made it into that final edit of Moonwalk One. And even then, it had been cropped from this super widescreen format into four by three. Such a shame. So, so no one. So it was this whole thing of well, most of this stuff we hadn't seen before, but even what we had seen before had never been seen like this because it, it had been cropped and as you say when, when other films have used it that they would use something that had gone down about five generations did you get your um uh, audio footage then from ben like where did you do your work did you were you sprinting from from nasa hq in dc and then down to texas and then down to florida like were you popping between nasa facilities tracking stuff down or did you have stuff sent to you well, well m- most of the um most of the actual on-site uh, research happened at, at the National Archives in in Maryland in College Park, and I spent a good month there in in the summer of 2017, just as as we said before, cataloging all this stuff, working out where the best sources of reels were likely to be, and then also by that stage going through all the shot lists which we'd found for the 65 millimeter stuff, and. Uh, just to, again, to go back to these sort of wow moments, I remember going on a, a short vacation to um, San Diego after this trip and I was sat in a cafe on the beach and I first looked through these shot lists of th- these are very detailed and um, explaining, you know, wide shot Saturn V, um, aerial Saturn V, um, CU close up, Armstrong suiting up and it was just like, I, I could see in my head then what this was going to be like because it was it was scenes that I was familiar with, but I was familiar with them in shot on sixteen mil, <laughs> and it, so it's it's like this is the, this is an alternate angle of the same scene shot on an IMAX camera effectively. So that was very exciting. In terms of the scope of what you've done and the work you've contributed to, um, I've read all – man, it's more than 1,200 pages of the Apollo 11 flight journal transcripts. Yes. And your name comes up in that quite frequently. Right. Um, So you you are definitely – you know. 
you are living in NASA posterity. Yes, I mean, the, 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 I should sort of give a shout out to, to David Woods, who who created the Apollo Flight Journal. He's actually lives in Glasgow in, in Scotland, so another Brit, although... Um, I noticed that just because the transcript has quite a few UK spelling right, yeah. preferences. Yeah, and now he's he's done an absolutely amazing job. So, And, and he's been working on this for a lot longer than, than me. So <laughs> I obviously am perfectly happy for them to, to, to use my work and you know make it available to, to other researchers but we wouldn't be able to do the work that we've done without the work of people like david and of course ben and so i i feel like it's a sort of standing on the shoulders of giants exercise in that every as sure. we go forward it, we can improve um the, the historical record a bit more based on what's come gone before so basically, how long did the Apollo Eleven? How long did the project take? How long was was production? How were you involved? From it sounds like you were involved from the very beginning. Like how long did you work on this? Well, it was it was um, we started the research in January two thousand and seventeen um, because the, the last steps film premiered in October twenty sixteen. So it was shortly after that finished that we started on the Apollo 11 project and then the we were still working on it right up until um just before the Sundance premiere which was January 2019 so it's two year it's a two year project basically yeah it, it, so for those of you who don't know NASA's archives and the amount of material you've heard it said, we've talked about, you know, tens of thousands of hours of, of video and audio material. There is so much stuff here. And so as someone who is slightly familiar, I've worked on a number of documentaries in which I've uh, had to work with NASA to get material and go through material. It is an overwhelming amount of stuff in the best way, but still overwhelming. So the the fact that you guys put something this great together in like two years may to some people sound like a long time to me it does not at all you guys did an amazing job in a really short amount of time well yes but but as i said like back to the apollo flight journal thing we 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 can rely on that previous body of research and then also my my sure. previous body of research having already done the um some of the apollo um synchronization um and then obviously we we had all the 30 tracks to work with and we could do I could do a lot more of that subsequently for, for the film but the basic principle was was the same as when I'd done it before so it wasn't like it was like riding a bicycle again after a few years of sure. not doing it um so it's like that old uh, it's like the old Jurassic Park tagline you know like four th four million years in the making or something like that like this is the same sort of thing it may have been two years of, of actual like production ex uh you know work but Basically, it was actually many years more because everything you've worked on previously in your life has already been building toward this. Yes, but also I would say, I mean, the, 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 actually, for example, Todd Miller had done an amazing documentary called uh, Dinosaur 13 about an ancient um, dinosaur discovery that was uh, in uh, or a discovery of a, a dinosaur fossil that there was a lot of controversy over. He, he can go into more details, I'm sure, but but the um, his filmmaking skills and also the skills of people like Matt Morton, who was the composer, who just did such an amazing job. Uh, I've been listening to that score for weeks. <laughs> yes, <laughs> it's um, they had really cut their teeth on 
previous projects as well. So you're absolutely right that it's it, it doesn't seem like a, a very long time, but a lot of expertise has, has gone into this and from the whole team from before years of um, of being in dark rooms, basically. Well, certainly in my, my case. <laughs> yeah. You know, as a, I was the research coordinator on Cosmos, a space-time odyssey, and my job every day was to come to work, open up the scripts, break all the scripts down into like individual components that we needed to film, and then sit down daily with like our various science advisors or our history advisors, learn everything I could about what the script was describing in that particular moment, and then take that information and then sit down with the visual effects department or the animation department and say, here's what a black hole would look like. Here's how you need to depict it realistically, or here's what um, Isaac Newton's hair should look like. Here's what his shoe should look like. Here's what the streets of London should look like. Here's what the carriage he's riding in should look like. So basically my job every day was to come to work and learn and then teach other people what I just learned, which is an amazing job. Have you ever felt that way about like your work? Like you, you just get to come to work and just be exposed to some of the coolest information out there? Yes, uh, it, it's a real privilege. And especially when you get to go to places like the National Archives or the Johnson Space Center. And you, and, and when you're also meeting people who, who've, who've um, made history, like I, I was fortunate enough to meet, be introduced to Gene Krantz, the flight director recently, and it was just, um, and, and to get, got to show him my work. And it, it was just a really, really humbling experience because I, you know, I don't consider us as heroes here. I, these guys are the real heroes who, who, who did this. And so it, it's kind of bringing that to life for a new generation and showing what they did. Um, and keeping it for posterity—that's how I how I see it. But yes, it's it, it's a thrill. It's uh, it's I don't see it as a real job. It's um, people working in hospitals and on the beat or whatever. That's that's a real job. Not you know, I'm just playing around with space footage. What was your favorite thing? Is there a single favorite thing in all of your research that you came across? A single favorite piece of archive material that you found that you still just kind of like hold up as this was my favorite thing I discovered on this program? Oh, um, that is a tough one. I mean, I, it would probably come back to the sort of synchronization. I, I think, for example, the, there's a bit where Gene Kranz actually says, go for landing. And it's it's the real call, go for landing. And I synced the audio with the footage of him saying that, and that was that was very special because it, it felt like you know a very historical kind of moment um, in, in the flight that we now we can now sort of bring to life. Um, so that's that's one of my favourites, um, but also some of the um, um, quieter moments as well. Um, where the, the guys are kind of almost sort of talking off off mic, or well, not off mic because they're obviously on mic, but it, it, it's uh, you, you're kind of seeing behind the curtain in a way. There's probably more than you can count. I mean, the whole thing was probably in some ways um, just a, a cavalcade of incredible experiences and, and observations and nuggets. Yeah, I really like, I like, um, there's a scene in the film with the lunar liftoff and I really like all that uh, where they're taking off from the moon. And I don't really think that had ever been seen before because I think people hadn't really bothered to 
to to get that kind of material transferred from that scene. It would just be you'd see the flag go up and you'd hear Nixon speak, and then oh, then we're we're on the way home and uh, in the Pacific um, recovery. So bringing drama into that scene, I think, was um, a great achievement of Todd and the composers and and uh, being able to see the, the guys in Mission Control reacting to that. I, that's one of my favourite scenes in the film. I know for me and for many of my friends that I've spoken to who've seen the film, um, some of our favorite parts were the fact that Todd made the editorial decision to hold on those shots. And so rather than like intercutting with different things, if it's like a I, I believe he like he keeps it's several minutes of the descent and he films almost the entire ascent from the moon surface with just the, the single camera. And you just hear the entire audio the entire time and you really start living that moment. It, it has a certain amount of of honesty and authenticity that you wouldn't get if you were editing it down into a much shorter piece. Yeah. And I think that um, a problem I found with with um I'm not going to name specific films, but I, I think a lot of when this people have tried to tell this story before that they just get too um, keen to cut cut away to different shots. There, there isn't a kind of feeling that we should just let this thing breathe. It's like we have to show um, Neil Armstrong saying there's one small step for man. And then they would cut to a, a shot of the boot print immediately. Uh, which which isn't mm-hmm. even Neil Armstrong's boot print because it's I think it's Buzz Aldrin's boot print, but I'm sure you know the the shot I'm talking about. So that the Todd had that restraint to just let the thing breathe and le- let it run for three or four minutes. Yeah, you 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 know you just mentioned some unnamed documentaries that you think handled things maybe not so well. Were there any like uh, documentaries that you? continually watch or that you watched before this or like you know what are some of your favorite documentaries aside from apollo 11 that kind of like inspired you well uh, there's a, a an all archive film about a uh, formula one driver called Ayrton senna called senna which is is kind of i see that as a benchmark for um archival storytelling that um he was a brazilian driver he was the best driver in the world and he was in formula one for 10 years and he died in 1994 in a, in a crash during a during a race um and this film just told his entire career through the Formula One, um, well, not just the Formula One archives, but other archives, but they had access to that Formula One archive, probably in the same way that we had access to the NASA archive for Apollo 11, that same level of, um, whereas that that in some ways was, was more difficult because of the commercial aspects of, of getting, getting access to that. But just, I say, the way that it's edited, like a fiction film almost, but it's all real footage, that was a, um, that's a big in- inspiration um, for me, I think. Um, in terms of space documentaries, um, there was a film called For All Mankind in 1989, which took a similar uh, approach to what we've done with Apollo 11. But it was more, uh, it had interviews with the astronauts and it, it, it used footage from all the six landings to kind of create a super mission. So as someone who spent a lot of time um in archives, looking and listening to and watching various scientists and astronauts and cosmonauts and stuff like that. Do you have any favorites? Do you have any uh, any people that you've spent time with in, a, in an, I assume, archival way more than physically that uh, you find really fascinating? 
astronauts you're saying or scientists or astronauts like it just you know the kind of people that you come across in your work you know the the characters that uh, that you are spending so much time with do you have any favorites oh gosh that's a difficult question I, I mean all of the astronauts are fascinating in their own in their own way um i got to know gene sermon a bit through my work on the last man on the moon and he was very interesting guy. Um, I tend to not have met. I mean, people maybe imagine that I would have met lots of astronauts, and I, I, it's not not really the case. I've um, I know them through the archive. Um, but well, right, that's what I mean. Like the, you've spent time with them in a darkened room, like you were talking about. Yes. Um, who do I think? I, I re- I'm really sorry. I don't have a. I don't have a specific question right. to specific answer. If if you're anything like me, you know I'm the kind of guy who, um, as soon as you say like, you know, name your top five favorite films, and I'm always the guy who's who like my brain just stops. Yeah, exactly. As soon as you ask me those kinds of questions, I have those answers, but not when you ask me. Them. John Zarnacki, who was the main scientist on the Huygens um, surface science package, who who was the focus of Destination Titan. He, um, I mean, he became a very good friend of mine, and uh, yeah, it obviously all began when I was at college in that room on that, watching him on that stream. And he was always um, a fascinating character and just a, just a really enthusiastic, someone who, who cared a lot about science and communicating that to people. And that obviously came across that day and came across um, when I, when I got to know him and um yeah, it's a while since I've seen him. I need to give him a call. If you're listening, John, then hi. I, I, I'd love to hear from you. <laughs> so the reason I ask that is because I have, in my career working in mostly science documentaries, I have had the pleasure and honor of spending a lot of time interviewing or in the presence of astronauts and scientists and you know working on Cosmos. I've known Neil deGrasse Tyson for years. And the amount, like I always tell people, you spend five minutes with Neil and you are convinced you can do astrophysics. You can't, of course, because it's profoundly difficult. But Neil has a way of explaining really complex subjects that you actually walk away thinking you can do it. And that is something amazing. That is what separates um, the truly greats from others who are completely competent and even perhaps experts in what they do, but the ability to communicate that to others, the ability to light inspirational fires within others is I think what separates uh, so many people. Yes. That, that's just an amazing And I found thing. that I, Carl Sagan, obviously I, I didn't watch him. Uh, I was uh, about eight or nine when he, when he died, but I, I, I think he had that, that style from what I can see. Um, Absolutely did. He can, I can still watch the original cosmos and end up in tears. Yes. It's, it's, um, I know I have watched that. Yeah. That was very good. David Attenborough in the UK would, would, would be another example. Absolutely. Of, uh, Absolutely. Like he's a, he's both a national and a global treasure. Yeah. It's, uh, uh I'm, I mean, I'm sorry. I mean, actually I can think of someone else. Um, James Burke, who was uh, the BBC. Absolutely. Connection. Yes. Um, he, he did some great work on, on the Apollo program. In fact, he presented all the, used to present all the BBC's live coverage. He was kind of our, yes, kind of our world's cronkite, but unfortunately the BBC then went and wiped a lot of his um, stuff. So, uh, <laughs> Connections is still one of my absolute favorite 
uh, science shows I've ever watched. And just even recently, just in the last couple of years, I discovered that uh, somebody had put them all on YouTube and I actually downloaded them all and like rewatched them all. It is his work. I is he's just one of the, the most inspirational uh, science journalists, presenters I've ever seen. Uh, professionally and personally for me, Ben, um, a, a profoundly influential mentor in my life. Who are some of the mentors like in your life and your career uh, that, that have really kind of shaped shaped what you do and how you do it? Um, oh, God, that is a difficult question. Well, my, I'd, I'd say um, oh, that's a good question. I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. There's no one person who I would, I would go to and say uh, – Sorry, I, I, I'm doing that thing, aren't I? No, I mean, what's your favorite I, film? I understand. <laughs> Who's my mentor? I mean, the, the thing is, I'm 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 very kind of self-taught mm-hmm. in in some way. Mm-hmm. So I I don't I don't feel like there's one person who 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 said you know you must sort of follow you know like in a way we, we you asked me what is an archive producer. I think it's a it's it's a it's an evolving thing. It's whatever I choose it to be. Really, that role. So, so you yeah you've invented your uh, your own path. That's actually no. I, I mean that's that, that that's not true. I think with I think with the with the space stuff, it, it's a very specific thing. Um, who's a big influence? I'm really sorry. This is I'm blanking on this. I can't think of anyone specifically. Um, we can keep going. If you think of someone, you can you can uh, add it, and we can edit it right into this spot, and no one will be the wiser. I'll ask you some like yes. some more interesting questions. Like, so who is Steven Slater when he's not at work? Like, what are you? Uh, what are your interests in your off time? What is your you know? What is your favorite movie? What are some? What's some music you like? Do people? I mean, do people really care about my my personal life? I don't know. I, I, I I'm 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 a very big music fan. I love uh, the Beatles. I like. Um, Britpop sort of music, guitar music, and I, I'm a big fan of pop music as well. And I, I can see that I'd be interested in doing, working on a, some kind of music documentary because that's not something I've ever done before. Mm. So uh, I'm. It's hard to separate my professional and personal life because it's. I do it because I enjoy doing it. So I wouldn't say that, that I don't have a huge life outside of um, space research, really. Um, I I follow. Um, I enjoy watching certain sports. Um, I, um, I I have a. I, I just say I like learning things or learning uh, new stories, uh, or, or particularly when something ha- comes up that I, I didn't know about. And that's why I mean we're coming up to the 50th anniversary of the moon landings, and I I get so many emails from people, producers mainly saying that they want to try and do something definitive i hate that word that definitive i want to we want to do a definitive story of apollo 11 or something for apollo and i i always think well can't you just think find a really specific thing you want to tell a story about and then let's let's do that rather than like the lunar modules um propulsion system uh, there's probably a whole documentary you could make about that i'm just i just pick that i'll put that out of thin air but it's uh, I like I'm, I tend to be more um, wedded to those kind of things than something. Well, I suppose in a way we're talking at cross purposes a bit because you've done Cosmos, which does, you know, which is the story of the life universe and everything. But I think as, as you will appreciate, 
working on that, it's very, very hard trying to do something that has such a huge scope. Um, it's, uh, and, and you've done it well, obviously, but a lot of people try and fail. I love, by the way, that you just uh, combined Cosmos with Hitchhiker's Guide for the Galaxy. Well done. How, in what way did I do that? You said life, the universe, and everything. Right. Okay. I, that was subconscious. I didn't. I wasn't thinking of. I love it. It's perfect. That. It's absolutely perfect. One thing I just wanted to ask uh, Stephen uh, before we wrap up here, and Brandon, you can probably have some insight here as well. Is you know when when you guys work as as uh, researchers, and you and you get you know, kind of like an inspiration to, to uh, you know, look at uh, something in a, in a very deep way. Um, do you guys look at it from a technical standpoint or, or are you guys looking at it in how the story can be told? Well, I, 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 I'm always, the story is always the most important thing. It's, uh, you could have the best footage in in the world and it's so so if we take the mission control stuff for example uh it's always in the back of my mind was well how the reason for doing this is so that it can be used in a storytelling um capacity it's not just so i can geek out over the actual being able to sync the stuff together it's like i actually want to see this brought to life for a new audience so yeah it's uh i'd say definitely that rather than the technical stuff. You know, it's funny. I was about to say, you know, Cosmos, which was now seven, six, seven, whatever years ago, was the last thing on which I was a researcher. Um, I've gone on to become a director and a producer and a writer. And and then it hit, kind of hit me, even as you're just saying all of this, that's not, in, that's not cr actually technically true because as a writer and as a producer, um, all you're doing is researching these sorts of things to find stories. If you're making something like the story of God and you want to talk about how different cultures across planet Earth deal with the afterlife, you are researching all kinds of things to try to find people and elements of stories to, to tell. Um, and same, of course, with, you know, when we're working on something uh, through the wormhole episode or something like that, in which we're talking about spatial anomalies of one sort or another, you, of course, have to go seek out the best possible stories and people and whatnot. So in many ways, the, the research aspect doesn't change. And I would absolutely agree with Stephen that um, story absolutely comes first. And 90% or more of what I do is... Uh, is discovering those amazing stories and then just being like, how do I fit this in? Or you think you have your story already. You've mapped it out. You've done an outline. You've got your your uh, everything set up. And then you discover some extraordinary story that completely slicks the entire thing. And you start from zero because you discover some a different, a better story, a different story or uh, it. Half of everything we do is discovering something completely new blowing our brains out of both of our ear holes in, in pure excitement and say, and, and excitedly kind of reworking because you can't believe what you just found. And then you can't believe no one's, you know, knows this already and you can't wait to bring it to them. 
Yes, I agree. I mean, I think the um, obviously in Apollo Eleven, that moment is the discovery of the seventy mil material. It, it just takes it in a completely different direction. I mean, I don't. It would be very interesting to know what kind of film would have been made had we not found that stuff. I mean, I'm sure it would have still been interesting. It just wouldn't have been the same. Do you know what I mean? It, I, I like those kind of old. Well, in, in your sphere, parallel universes. That's that's a good a good um, way of looking at it. Well, yeah, in a different, in a different timeline, what would this, what would Apollo 11 have looked like had you not discovered the 70 millimeter footage? Yes. Or if, if, if let's say one person wasn't on the team, wasn't working on it or do you know what I mean? It's, it's a kind of, but then you, you could look at it another way, which is a a sort of, um, I, I obviously don't actually believe in this kind of thing, but, it's almost like a destiny sort of thing that somehow this film was supposed to be like this and supposed to be made. But of course that's not true. It just feel maybe feels like that <laughs> sometimes that we, we would, you know, this was, this was inevitable somehow, I, but it, it I agree. Wasn't. I think uh, you and I are on the same opinion in terms of destiny and divine providence and all of these sorts of things. But it, the difference is it feels like that because the project is so exceptional because the end product is so exceptional and it's so exceptional, not because of some sort of like, you know, divine hand moving things. It's because the right people happen to find each other on the right project and happen to stumble upon the right material to tell a story. And it's the thing that separates truly great documentaries that we're going to be talking about for decades to come and mediocre ones that we'll forget a week after we saw them. That's the difference. Yes, and I think also maybe there's some perception that that, that this 70 mil stuff just appeared miraculously to us, and I don't believe that's the case at all. I think um, the reason that we found it is because we asked the right questions, and people don't ask the right questions a lot of the time. One reason a lot of archive is not found is because people just don't ask. People just Or people wrongly assume that everything is, is out there and almost... Often that's not the case. Well, in this case, it wasn't. It, it wasn't true at all. But uh, anyway, yeah, no, I think what what I was kind of, and this is you know a perfect segue to what I was going to ask next. You know, one of the things that struck me about the the documentary Apollo Eleven is just simply that there wasn't a lot of hard cutting. You were able to immerse yourself in those uh, scenes. Like from what I understand, the first thing you guys saw was the crawler scene that that opens the film. And that is just a stupendous, I mean, you don't have to say a word. It just communicates the massive undertaking, uh, not only from just simply the technical side of it, you know, the engineering and the audacity of trying to fly to the moon, which is like a a dream of of, uh, humans is to uh, visit another world, but it's going to happen because people are making it manifest. But, through the filmmaking of just holding that shot. And like you say, it was this particular filmmaker that had the foresight to use those uh, uh, high-end cameras. And those things were huge to be, you know, they, those things are like the size of suitcases that they're holding in the sixties. And what I, no, I take that back. When what I understand, weren't, wasn't some of that stuff shot from helicopters and uh, they, uh, they, because of the size of the of the cameras, they just couldn't just slug them around like we do with a GoPro. 
Yeah, they, they were. It was, I mean, that was the, I know that was, I wasn't in the room at the time, but that was the first um, 70 mil material that, that the team ever saw was the crawler on the way to the pad. Um, and it was actually, the, the image was upside down because the, the film had been B-wound um, and, and they, I think everyone's jaw was just on the floor when they saw that. Um, but we carefully selected. I mean, I, I was, I, before that, I was asked and there was a, a consultation process in, okay, if we're going to pick three reels to do tests with, what which reels are we going to pick? And so I had the shot list and we looked at the shot list and we were like, okay, we want the suiting up, we want some crawler shots and we want the launch. And so that's how we ended up doing those first. And But it's interesting that, as, as you say, Mike, they are in the final that that's how the film starts. So maybe Todd, and you'd have to speak to him about this, but he was so blown away by what he'd seen that day that it stuck with him that this was how the film needed to start. But it was natural. It, obviously, it's natural that you would start with The Crawler, I think. Yeah, I think that's that's true. And I think the impact was so uh, you know incredible. And I remember as a young kid being on that tour uh, at the uh, Cape Kennedy when I saw Apollo 11 launch was the fact that it was so massive. And then we would, you know, you, you actually witness the launch and it's miles away and you can still see it. And of course, film does it justice now because you guys found that high quality, but I think you guys nailed it uh, as a, as a, as an, as as a uh, collaborative effort, the 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 taste and feel of being there because I remember feeling the earth shake of that launch and uh, you know you you don't forget it as a kid because when you're a kid that's that's like you know gold it's it's like being in a candy shop but the thing is is that you guys really had a really good sense of the feel of it and the and and the and the and the, and the vibe of it and I think that there just speaks to you know, the passion of the, uh, the, the filmmaking. And of course, if, if filmmaking is anything when it's at its best, it is that ability to tell stories, you know, Steven, thank you so much, man. It's just been uh, wonderful to talk to you again. I uh, hope the next time you come to America, we can, we can hang no, out. It was some great. More. I had such a good time. It was great. It was, it was, um, yeah, we, um, Brandon, I, I'm sure Mike mentioned, but we 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 were at South by Southwest, so um, we we got to hang out quite a bit there. So I heard yes. he uh, he um, showed you a good time in Texas. Yeah, yeah. Archivist, the dream, going to another yeah, library. We went, we went to the J, uh, <laughs> we went to the um, yeah the LBJ library. But I tell you what, I this would be such an interesting topic for a podcast. Um, I discovered this after I got back, but there's a place where they have the first ever in camera photograph um, in in Austin. Um, it, it's in a museum there. It's um, and it was taken in eighteen. 26 or 1827 by this French guy called Nietzsche. Um, it's the earliest surviving photograph. Um, so I'm annoyed. I'm annoyed. We didn't get to see that. That's crazy. Yeah. I mean, and I never knew of that, you know, because Brandon, had you ever heard of that? I have not, man. Well, I, I think Steven is, is, uh, 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 provided a little uh, uh, image uh, at his uh, social media. So maybe we can uh, uh, get you out. guys. To ch yeah, it's really, really cool. I thought of something that was a very big influence for me. There were, in the late 90s, the BBC did a six-part series called The Planet. Now, I don't know whether you, you've ever seen that, but it was 
I have not only seen it, but I worked for James Younger, who was one of the writer and producers of that. I worked for him for on a number of shows. It's it's um it's superb. It's uh, it absolutely uh, is, uh, and it, it's a kind of TV I want to see more of. And I it, it's um I was I don't, how old would I have been? Twelve, thirteen at the time. It was very um, influential for me to to sit and see that and how they would structure those episodes. Um, and I don't yeah it, it's immaculately researched and it does feel like it, it is a kind of definitive piece and I think it's so hard to do that and now I as I say I get I get calls from people saying we want to do something definitive in time for the, the anniversary which is in what three months or something and it's I, I know that they spent two years researching that so it, it, good things do not happen quickly uh, but so, so, so I, I've kind of lost my train of thought a bit here but I, I think if you're going to attempt to do something like that you have to do it well otherwise yes. you, um, you you fail um, I think one of one of my favorite things about the planets was how it covered the Russian side of the space race um, I I don't know how British history covers these sorts of things, but Americans understand the space race. They know that we were going against the Reds, going against the Ruskies, but we know next to nothing over here about what Russia was doing on that side. Yeah, you can you can mention Sputnik. We we know what kicked it off. But after that, like there's a dearth of understanding of what was going on on the other side of that race. And one of the things that I loved about the planets is it did an amazing job of kind of opening that door and illuminating the amazing stories and things that were going on on the other side of the, uh, the lane in that racetrack. Yeah. It's, it's very um, American and Russian centric that, that show and which it should be because they were the, the key players. A lot of the uh, man stuff they cover in, the, in, in, in that with the, um, well, I suppose it's mainly unmanned. Uh, there is an episode about, that deals with the moon, but it, it, it's very much more focused on the, uh, on the Russian side and then on the science side than the, the usual, we choose to go to the moon fair. Right. So can you tell us what you're working on next? What, uh, what's, what's in your future? Um, I'm dealing with a huge backlog of, of requests for assistance with um, documentaries for the 50th anniversary. And it's just a case of, of trying to work out what I have time to help with. Uh, so that's on my desk a lot. And then hopefully um, moving away to, to do some uh, projects that are not to do with um, space because I kind of feel like I need a bit of a break from it. But I'm not saying that I won't come back to that or won't be. I suppose it's kind of inevitable that people are always going to ask me about Apollo 11 or about uh, my archive work in that regard. But there are other stories to tell that I want to want to do. I don't have anything specific. Um, I think something music, I'm very interested in music and mm -hmm. I think that might be where I'd go next, but who knows? I just don't, we just don't know. There's nothing that sounds um, brilliant. specific. That sounds I will brilliant. let you know as soon as I know. <laughs> well, we're, I think uh, we will be following your career. Uh, is there anything else in the future that you, would you like to get back to directing again, making, uh, making your own uh, film again? Absolutely. I would. And I, I do have some ideas, but I think it would be, 
again, something like Destination Titan, where it's a, a really quite a small film and it would only have a, a small number of contributors and, and and I could sort of do it at my own pace. Um, that's what I what I'm into. And and in depth archive research because I think it's um it's uh I think we've only scratched the surface of what we can do with archive and a lot of uh, there's a lot of education ways that people can be educated about using archive that I want to be a part of actually so um I think uh I I, I the teaching aspect of it is something that appeals to me and talks and things although i need to need to be better at um i'm not great at standing in front of an audience so uh need to brush up on those skills possibly i hope i haven't been um rambled on too much today it's not something that comes easy to me so not not at all not at all and and if anything apollo 11 is proof of exactly what you are talking about that you can tell extraordinary stories extraordinary you can pull people, reduce people to tears about something that everyone has already very familiar with and has already even seen, um, if told spectacularly well because of the sort of work and the caliber of work that people like you put into it. So um, thank you so much for for the your you know uh, amazing work that you've done. Thank you so much for sitting down and talking to us today and best of luck going forward with whatever you do. And I can't wait to see what that is going to be. No, that's that's great. It's it's been a pleasure, and um, thank you, thank you for having me. And I hope um, people got something out of it. <laughs> Sorry, that's not a very good sign off, is it? I have to well, if they didn't, there. I'm sure Mike and I did. <laughs> Brandon, what an incredible interview! I don't even know where to begin. Uh, it's such a dis- stupendous. Uh, film what was what was your impressions of of talking with a uh, steven uh besides the fact that the dude is just laser focused on the space program it's clearly an obsession you know what i think walking away from that interview one of the biggest things that i was kind of hit with is the magic that is created from people who do things that most of us don't find remotely magical and what i mean by that is his job is probably for many people very tedious. Uh, you know, he's like he said, he sits in a dark room and he pours over documents and he pours over audio feeds. He's got tens of thousands of hours of stuff that he has to go through. And that sounds to most of us to be horrible. But what does he, what do he and his colleagues produce at the end of that? You know, they, they distill all that down into this elixir that is the Apollo 11 film. And I, I was just speaking to someone just this morning who said she watched that movie and just wept throughout the entire movie just because of the overwhelming awe of the experience. And that awe is the result of years of the sort of hard, tedious work that uh, Stephen and others have have done. Yeah, I think what I wasn't quite a- aware of was how many other film projects – um, that he uh, was a part of that prepared him for this kind of culmination into what I would call a a historical document that will be looked at a thousand years from now. I think if if everything else is gone in the uh, uh, apocalypse uh, that is in our future, perhaps that 
if anything survives, I really hope it's that one film because it it seems to communicate universally and it's not something that we have to be told what's happening. We can just look at that film and just get it. Well, and you know what? we It's not the first Apollo 11 or Apollo documentary ever been made, and it's not even the only great one. There are many others that are also phenomenal. The difference, I think, between this one and those is that this one actually did something for history. It actually took uh, the, 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 the puzzle pieces they found and actually connected them in ways that had never been connected before, matching that audio to the video, finding new video that none of us had ever seen before, that sort of stuff. That is actually adding to history. That is building it. It is adding musculature to a story we thought we knew entirely, but we didn't. And for that reason alone, this thing is going to stand the test of time because it, it isn't merely entertaining or inspiring. It is actually enriching the history of those events. Yeah, I could not agree more. I think the, 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 uh, the accomplishment of the film is that it um, communicates visually um, in, in a moment from the, from the beginning uh, moments of the film. And uh, certainly holds that that tension uh, throughout. I don't think there's a, you know, it, you know. Sometimes when you watch films, you know, we we put our well, and of course you've worked as a film critic. You know, you put your your criticism hat on, and you start looking for things that are weaknesses. And I really thought about it, and I thought, well, you know, as a docu a documentary uh, uh, experience. I couldn't find any weak links. Was there anything at all that bugged you about it? Or were you just kind of like hoping that it would go longer and you could see more of it? Oh, I, yeah. Oh, I would have, it could have been multiple hours longer and I would have been just as bliss, more blissfully happy. Yeah, no, I didn't find any weaknesses in it. I was um, not concerned. I was interested going in knowing that there was no narration, knowing that there were no interviews, that everything was going to be told only using source footage, only using source audio. And so that was a very – and so as someone who's worked and written for documentaries myself, I wanted to see how that was going to be pulled off. And because – again, going back to Stephen – because of the sorts of things he found, he was able to fill in every little – paving stone, every little touching stone along the way to tell the entire story from start to finish with no missing pieces. Yeah, I, I, I completely uh, agree with that. And, you know, we can uh, certainly uh, watch the, the film again when it's released uh, on, you know, hopefully uh, uh, Netflix or or at the very least, uh, uh, you know, whatever the, the new uh, physical uh, medium that is available because I always want to see those behind the scenes uh, aspects of uh, of these uh, projects because I I'll be really interested because I heard something about the film that they were uh, 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 seeing for the first time these 70 millimeter films that the types of cameras or projectors rather that they were using don't physically touch the film they are controlled by uh, airflow so that they don't damage 
the uh, original artifact. Uh, Fascinating. You know, that's – Yeah, because those artifacts are so old and have been sitting in boxes for decades. Yeah, it's, it's going to be really interesting. Yeah. So I, I'm going to be looking forward at the nuts and bolts of that, and I'm sure we'll learn more uh, as the year progresses because, of course, this is the year of the of the 50th anniversary of the Apollo 11 uh, uh, expedition. Uh, maybe in, in closing, uh, Brandon, what is your uh, most memorable space expedition? Is it Apollo 11? Is it Apollo 13? Is it one of the shuttle uh, 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 missions? Or maybe it's one of the robotic probes. Which one stands out to you as your, as your favorite, at least for this week? <laughs> in terms of what humans have done, nothing comes close to Apollo 11. For me, Apollo 11 is not only quite possibly the greatest human achievement in the entire sweep of history of of human habitation on planet earth it is also for me something more it is a symbol of what human beings can do when they come together in the interest of science and exploration and innovation and engineering to build something as incredible as they did in so short a time that is what humans are capable of doing. That is what – that we should be celebrating the insane hubris. And I don't mean that in a bad way. I mean that in the best possible way. We are humans. This is what we can do. And when we get down and when we get despondent and when we look at the maelstrom of our current lives and everything that is going wrong, we can look to this as a prime sort of like tentpole of history and say, this is what we are capable of. Let's get back to doing things like that. Yeah, for sure. I, I, I think that, you know, for me uh, personally, you know, Apollo 11 is certainly that one human uh, event that uh, is singular in nature. And, uh, you know, I, I really hope that some of the other people that are really uh, screaming and yelling for a, a manned Mars mission, that that would probably be uh, the next uh, type of, uh, of, uh, of exploration uh, uh, planning, and uh, perhaps uh, it'll be comparable, and it'll be a very different thing because the, the magnitude of that will be exponentially even more difficult. So I'm looking forward to when that happens, and hopefully you and I will live to see it. 100%. Yeah, I completely agree. That would be the next major uh, – The, I mean, it, it like you said, in technically speaking, it would be exponentially more difficult and more impressive than even landing on the moon. It, it would perhaps be a little less so in the human consciousness merely because it is the second, times humans, second time humans have visited another planetoid. But should we ever – can we ever tire of, of what that means, of what that kind of accomplishment – you know, indicates that's hint. No, we should not. Yeah. We'll have to call Andy. Weir uh, up one of these days and see what he has to say about uh, that particular uh, 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 mission and what it might uh, uh, mean for the human race. And of course, I think Andy would say bring potatoes. That, that's right. Bring potatoes and, uh, and uh, uh, keep it, keep, the, keep the science real. Yeah. Disco lives. <laughs> All right, Brandon, this is great, man. We will catch you on the other side. Thanks for doing the interview for me. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you so much, sir. My name is Mike Dawson. I am producer 
music composer, and host of Dreamers to Makers. I want to thank Steven Slater for being on the podcast today. And I want to congratulate Brandon Fibbs for conducting the first interview of the Dreamers to Makers second season. I encourage all of you to check out Fibbs' own podcast, Wikisurfer. All my music you heard today can be found at my band's website, RoarElectra.com or at RoarElectra.Bandcamp.com. You can find my Dreamers to Makers podcast anywhere podcasts are found and at Dreamers to Makers home at AssignmentUniverse.com. Stay tuned for more news about the podcast and other projects. But for now, goodbye, old friends. See you next time.